right, Genesis chapter 7, I'll pick it up in verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, the same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up and the windows of heaven were opened. And the rain was upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. In the selfsame day entered Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them into the ark. They and every beast after his kind and all the cattle after their kind and every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth after his kind and every fowl after his kind, every bird of every sort. And they went in unto Noah into the ark Two and two of all flesh, wherein is the breath of life. And they that went in, went in male and female of all flesh, as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. And the flood was forty days upon the earth, and the waters increased and bare up the ark, and it was lifted up above the earth. And the waters prevailed and were increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark went upon the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth, and all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. Fifteen cubits upward did the water prevail, and the mountains were covered. And all flesh died that moved upon the earth, both of fowl and of cattle and of beasts and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, and every man, all in whose nostrils was the breath of life, of all that was in the dry land died." And every living substance was destroyed, which was upon the face of the ground, both man and cattle and the creeping things and the fowl of the heaven, and they were destroyed from the earth. And Noah only remained alive, and they that were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed upon the earth an hundred and fifty days. Chapter 8 now. And God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the cattle that was with him in the ark, and God made a wind to pass over the earth, and the waters assuaged. The fountains also of the deep and the windows of heaven were stopped, and the rain from heaven was restrained. And the waters returned from off the earth continually, and after the end of 150 days the waters were abated. And the ark rested in the seventh month on the seventeenth day of the month upon the mountains of Ararat. And the waters decreased continually until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, were the tops of the mountains seen. And it came to pass at the end of forty days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made, and he sent forth a raven which went forth to and fro until the waters were dried up from off the earth. Also he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters were abated from off the face of the ground. But the dove found no rest for the sole of her foot, and she returned unto him into the ark, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. Then he put forth his hand and took her and pulled her in unto him into the ark. And he stayed yet another seven days, and again he sent forth a dove out of the ark. And the dove came in to him in the evening, and lo, in her mouth was an olive leaf plucked off. So Noah knew that the waters were abated from off the earth. And he stayed yet another seven days, and sent forth a dove, which returned not again unto him any more. And it came to pass, in the six hundredth and first year, in the first month of the first day of the month, the waters were dried up from off the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark, and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. And in the second month, 
on the seventh and twentieth day of the month was the earth dried. And God spake unto Noah, saying, Go forth of the ark, thou and thy wife and thy sons and thy sons' wives with thee. Bring forth with thee every living thing that is with thee, of all flesh, both of fowl and of cattle, and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, that they may breed abundantly in the earth and be fruitful and multiply upon the earth. And Noah went forth, and his sons, and his wives, and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every fowl, and whatsoever creepeth upon the earth, after their kinds, went forth out of the ark. And Noah builded an altar unto the Lord, and took of every clean beast, and of every clean fowl, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a sweet savor, and the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake. For the imaginations of man heart is evil from his youth, neither will I again smite any more everything living as I have done. While the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. Thus is the reading of God's word and all his children said, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we pray thee now as we look into your word, you would open it unto us that we might see the work of Christ and we might see your will and the things that thou hast done to redeem a people unto thyself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning I wanted to couple, uh, cover a couple of just major topics. One of is I want us to appreciate God's universal judgment due sin. God's universal judgment do sin. And then I want to just give a general sketch of regeneration that we kind of see mapped out here before us in the chronology uh, and the order that things are set before us here in Genesis chapter 7 and Genesis chapter 8. So I have made for us a chart, if you'll take a look at that. I want us to appreciate... um, how long Noah's flood was, and that his judgment was indeed very much as God said it would be in terms of him destroying all flesh that moved, all air-breathing flesh that moved upon the face of the earth. So you can see in your chart here, I have chronicled for us the month number, how many months uh, of the year there are, and I've given the names of the month, and you can see I've got scripture reference on the right-hand side to anchor things down in terms of what it is set before us here. Now, I appreciate the work that a particular individual has done in terms of um, setting the calendar before us in terms of seven-day periods because this individual has put on a a chart everywhere the um, Sabbath days are, which is salient to our study today. He also has set before us something we can appreciate that is commonly known, that the Hebrew calendar every once in a while has 13 months in one year. And if you recall from that book, The Calendar of the Crucifixion, I make note of that because um, they have leap years, just as we have a leap year, where every four years we add one day to our calendar. Well, every few years, and it follows a certain pattern, um, where they add an extra month. And so that month would be the 13th month, as you see listed down there, um, Adar. Uh, The 12th month would be Adar 1. Sometimes they call the 13th month Adar 2. Then it starts over again, Nisan. So God has set this calendar before us in terms of the dates that he has accomplished things um, in, um, with respect to the flood. So um, <clears throat> what you should appreciate um, from that is this. I, I, the first date you'll notice there is IR the 10th, and that was when God warned Noah that he had seven days uh, before he was going to flood the earth. And so we can appreciate that that was a Sabbath day, and so Noah might have been worshiping the Lord, and the Lord was communicating to him his will. And so we come to church, and we worship the Lord, and the Lord communicates us 
to us his will through the reading of the Bible as the Holy Ghost impresses truths upon our hearts. And I pray that you will hear Lord's, uh, God's will and God's um, word from the pulpit. So he was warned seven days prior to the flood that, um, that God would open up the heavens and the earth and destroy things seven days hence. So on 17th of IR, you'll find that in Genesis 7:11, God has Noah in the ark, and then he uh, begins 40 days of rain where he opens up the, um, opens up the heavens and... Um, opens up all of the fountains of the great deep. So water came upon the surface of the earth from two directions. It came from above and it came from below. And all my life I've had this idea that it rained 40 days and 40 nights, and so Noah, after 41 days, it was all done and he could, was free to go. Well, you can see here when you start adding up all of the time that the Lord has set before us here, if you put it in a chronological order, you had 40 days and uh, 40 nights of rain, and that was completed on the 28th of Sivan. That would be the third month. Then he has 150 days where the water prevails upon the face of the earth 15 cubits deep. So you can think of it for 40 days. He fills up the earth, covers it with water, and then for 150 days the water is literally buried in, the earth is buried in 15 cubits of water. Now, it's not just significant that he had the earth covered with 15 cubits of water, but you can appreciate all of the cataclysmic uh, geographic upheaval that took place during that period of time. You are not going to cling to a branch for 150 days while God stirred the pot. The first 40 days, of course, it raining on your head and then the, um, the fountains uh, bursting from, from beneath, filling the planet with water. But it wasn't until, he tells us in Genesis 8, 4, on the 17th of Tishri, that the ark rests. So the waters were quite turbulent and um, a great deal of upheaval took place until that particular time. That is also a Sabbath day, coincidentally, when you look at the, uh, at the calendar. And it should be because God specifically says that that was the day that the Lord um, would rest on the seventh day of the week. And here we have the ark resting on the 17th of that month, which happened to be a um, Sabbath day. Not a coincidence also that our Lord was resurrected from the dead on the 17th of Nisan, crucified on the 14th, raised from the dead on the 17th. So, again, we see in the flood here, God is setting um, uh, forward, setting in our, in our thinking things that we might expect with respect to when he poured out his judgment on his son. Um, so that 150 days ends on the 28th of Sheshvan, and then you have another 150 days where the water begins to return. The scripture says that the wind blew and then water started to go down. So that's another 150 days, and it's on the first month first day of the 10th month that the mountaintops become visible. So you can see from your chart here that um, in the ninth month or the eighth month on the 28th day, from that point, things start to come down. And then you have at the end of another month, approximately, that the tops of the mountains become uh, visible. Um, so that happens for another 150 days. Then on Nisan the first, that would be the first month of the year, the first day of the first month of the year, that's Genesis 8:13. we see that Noah looks out uh, on the ground and he sees that it is dry. <clears throat> now we're going to talk a little bit later what that word dry means, but it, has, it, it means basically that what he saw, the land was laid waste. Um, you're familiar with the rain we had about a month ago, how that after it stopped raining, um, the land was not fit to walk upon. If you were to walk across my lawn, you would have sunk. It's, it was muddy, and it would stayed muddy for a, quite some time, and then it finally dried out, and so that's what he does. And he looks another 57 days later, 
that's when he sees that it is truly dry. In other words, it's dry enough to support um, the weight of animals walking on it. You certainly wouldn't want them to go out when things were all wet and swampy and marshy. The animals would get bogged down in the mud. So he waits 40 days, and then that we see that on the 12th of IR, he sends out a raven and a dove, and the raven goes to and fro and keeps coming back to the ark because a raven feeds on Karen, can't find anything to eat out of the ark, so he comes back because God has laid everything to waste. Sends out the dove, the dove goes out, and the dove comes back. He waits seven more days, sends out the dove again. The second time, the dove comes back with an olive leaf, uh, indicating that um, there's peace. Uh, the dove, the olive leaf represents peace. Waits another seven days, sends the dove out a third time. The dove does not return on the third time, indicating that there is a place for his foot to rest. And that's when God tells him to leave. And so one day later, on IR the 27th, he's told to go forth because the ground is truly dry at that point. So how long was Noah in the ark? Erase from your head 40 days and 40 nights. He was in the ark 395 days. And so from that, we should appreciate that God's judgment was thorough and it was complete. He destroyed everything like he said he was going to do. And so 150 days plus the 40 underwater before it even began to recede, um, you have a great deal of time when this planet was underwater. Um, I've done a lot of binge watching lately on uh, um, utilizing resources that um, show the veracity of scripture with respect to the flood. And there are those who say that if you took all of the earth and dumped it into the ocean and and leveled the planet out that the earth itself would be about 10,000 feet underwater. There's a lot of water on this planet. 71% of it's covered by water. And so the people that have done those calculations of volumes said that, you know what, if you took all this dirt and spread it out, we'd be underwater by a, a great margin. So 15 cubits underwater was the highest mountain. I don't know how high the mountains were back then, but they probably were not as high as they are today. When God opened up the floodgates, he undoubtedly, as I said, created a great deal of geographic upheaval which I believe is visible to us if you fly over the southwest of the U.S. It's not hidden by vegetation. You can see Monument Valley. You can see uh, Arches National Park. You can see um, geographical um, um, things. How's that for word? Geographical things that were carved by water. Clearly a great deal of water flooded across the southwest of the U.S., uh, southwest portion of the U.S., and there is a very large canyon there um, the southern side of which is a thousand feet lower than the northern side. Clearly it was not um, created by the carving of the uh, Colorado River, but rather through this, this huge geographic up, upheaval. So from this chart you should appreciate the length of the flood and the, um, and the sovereignty of God and his might and his power in bringing forth judgment as he said he would. In Second Peter 3, uh, verses 6, it says to us, the world that was then was overflowed with water and it perished. And that is a prelude to what is going to come next. So he says, just as the earth was destroyed once, it is now reserved to be destroyed by fire. So in 2 Peter 3, 10 through 13, he says, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in the which the heavens shall pass away with great noise and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Now, because these things are true, the question is then set before us, how then as Christians do we spend our time? What do we think about? Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be 
and all holy conversation and godliness. That's 2 Peter 3.11. That's a fair question to ask any Christian. Everything's going to be destroyed on this planet. It's going to be burned up. And actually, it's worse than that because it's not going to be an ash heap. It's going to be dissolved. It's not going to exist anymore. What kind of person ought he to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Looking for and hastening until the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens, being on fire, shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. That is what we do. We look for a new heaven and a new earth, and we conduct ourselves in a godly manner. Think of Noah in the ark. What is he looking for? He gets to a point where he can see the tops of the mountains. He's getting a glimpse of the world that is going to come. So, when Noah was preparing the ark, what do you suppose he was thinking about? Well, I don't think he was concerned with who was going to win the next election. He was probably not concerned about the latest political injustice. What he knew was the hearts of men were um, desperately wicked. Um, in Genesis 6-5, you read that God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. No one knew that. He understands that men are in bondage to sin. They're in bondage to Satan. They're in bondage to the world. So he's not concerned with what's going out in the world here. He simply wants to obey God's will, and he wants to build that ark. Was he worried about the weather? He wasn't worried about the weather because he knew it was not going to rain until such time as the ark was completed. Hebrews 11.7 tells us that by faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not yet as seen, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the savings of his house. So there he was. The Lord had told him what was going to come, and he believed it, and so he acted upon the things that the Lord told him. In like manner, we should conduct ourselves in such a way that we believe what the Lord has told us about how he's going to pull the plug on this planet, and he's going to burn it up and dissolve it. So we know that life is temporal. Not only is it temporal for you and me, but this creation is temporal. He's going to destroy the whole thing. So Noah moved with reverential fear, trusted that the Lord, that he was going to do what he said he was going to do. And so, in like manner, we should not be concerned about the affairs of this world, but rather with our Heavenly Father's will. <clears throat> about a month or so ago, we were visiting uh, my sister-in-law, and I happened to see an article penned, or pinned up on a bulletin board, and I read it, and what it contained was uh, um, an economic prediction for what that author thought was going to happen in the coming year. Well, I read the date on the article, and it was about one or two years old. I don't remember which it was, but it was at least one year old. And she said, well, I read that, and then I see what's going to happen, or what has happened, and then I go back and see if the, article, the author was correct. If they're not correct, I reject it, and next year I look for somebody else. Well, in like manner, we should not... Um, if you have been following um, certain prophets who have been saying that, you know, Trump's going to return to the White House, or this or that's going to happen, I would reject all of those people. Uh, out of hand because they don't know what's going to happen. We certainly don't know. We certainly know they don't know what's going to happen, but they have proven themselves to be false prophets and they have proven themselves to be liars. So our hearts and mind should be fixed on things above and we should be reading our scriptures because God tells us what's going to happen. One, and two, he tells us who's in charge of everything, who is ruling and reigning in the hearts of every man, uh, which is God, even though certain men are directed by Satan. But that, of course, is all subordinate to God. Now, we should not be um, surprised when we read about things that happened in Half Moon Bay last week. 
who would have thought that a mushroom farm would be a place of violence? And yet it was somebody went in and shot the place up and killed, I believe, seven people. We should not be surprised by that. We should not be surprised by the perversion of our political officers because, again, the thoughts in their hearts are continuously evil all the time, too. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, tells us that men are in bondage to Satan. They do his will, and they are in bondage to their flesh. He tells us here in verse 2, wherein in times past ye walked according to the course of this world. So we behave, used to behave the way they behave now, according to the prince of the power of the air, that spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. This is, what, um, this is who works in the hearts of people. Satan, who is the prince of the power of the air, and he's the spirit that works in the children of disobedience. They are subordinate to him, and they do his will. He is their father in a, in a, a parabolic sense from what the scripture says. Among whom also we all had our conversation in times past after the, in the lusts of our flesh. And now here we have show that they're in bondage to the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we're by nature the children of wrath even as others. So when we see all these horrible things happening in the world, it, it's no different than it was in the day of Noah. That's where people's minds are. It's continuously thinking evil thoughts. That's the way we were until God opened up our hearts unto our sin and revealed it to us and then um, regenerated us. So the political events that we observe in this world are certainly not out of context of what the Scripture says. It's what we would expect to see, and so we watch it with the idea that we are discerning the sign of the times. So our motivation watching these things, at least mine is, is how close are we to the Lord's actual coming? You know, I don't know if Noah was looking at the clouds in, in terms of them um, gathering and thinking to himself, well, I guess I'm almost done building here, um, but I know it's not going to rain until I'm done, and we know that the end of the world is not going to come until the last of the saints comes into the um, Christ, the, the true ark of man. But we look, and so the, we have a general interest to see that what we see in Scripture agrees with what we see in the world, Scripture being the overriding factor. The Lord does tell us that... Though we're looking at these things, we are not to ever let it capture our heart. And he uses the military um, example when he says that no man that warreth, no man that goes out to war, no man that is a soldier, entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. In other words, you don't get caught up in the things that are going on in this world. You simply listen to what your superior officer has to say, and you are diligent to follow their orders. That's what you would do in the military. You do not want to get yourself distracted uh, by something going on in the world that's not salient to what's right in front of you, lest you get yourself killed. And so the Lord is telling us, do not entangle yourself with the affairs of this world. Uh, of a truth, you are in a war. We are in a spiritual war, and you have a bullseye on your back because Satan would seek to destroy you. In Ephesians 6.12, it says, We wrestle not against flesh and blood. So wrestling is a way of engaging in warfare with a particular individual. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And so as we go out in the world and... As Christians, we are in spiritual warfare. So we don't get tangled up in the things of this world. We keep our eyes fixed on the prize that we would not be distracted from it um, and make sure that we are doing what the Lord would have us to do. He says our conversation is in heaven. In other words, our communication with the Lord 
um, God is our not only our Father, but He is our King, King of King and Lord of Lords, and we answer to Him. So all the rules that men might pass in this world, we are to obey every ordinance of man, so long as it does not contradict our sovereign Lord's um, rules and laws. And so our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we keep our eyes fixed on Christ and fixed on the heavenly Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, um, of which the Lord has given us a glimpse. He tells us in scriptures what it's going to be like up there, how it's a place of righteousness, a place where no sin dwelleth. And so we can read in scripture what it is, but it's hard to apprehend those truths in our hearts absent what grace God has given us to apprehend some of those um, truths. So we would not be entangled. We would keep our eyes fixed on Christ. So I've no doubt that Noah, while he was preparing the ark, was preoccupied and focused on the task at hand, not only of building the ark, but Scripture says he was a preacher of righteousness, so I have no doubt that he was preaching um, the gospel. So we would ever have our hearts and minds fixed on the Lord and be heavenly-minded about all of the things that we do. Um, Now, with respect to the judgment of God in the flood, I do want to mention the rainbow, um, because it's not called a rainbow in the Scripture. It's actually called a bow, and the Lord says it will appear in the cloud, but it's actually called a bow. Now, a bow, as you recall, is a weapon of war. And so people have taken another symbol of God, and we know what the LGBT community has done with it, but of a truth, people think of the rainbow as something that, at the end of which, might be a pot of gold guarded by a leprechaun. So they have taken the truth of Scripture and they have turned it into a silly story and a a fable, as though it were some quaint fictional account. Every time you see a bow in the sky, you should be thinking of God's judgment and of his righteousness, And, of course, people have taken it and completely obliterated the true meaning of it. It's a token, it's a sign of God's covenant that he would not destroy the earth by flood again. Again, meaning he did once. So we should keep that uh, thought in our mind. Now, with respect to some of the symbology about the flood, we know that oftentimes in Scripture the water represents the gospel. Well, a little water is good and a little water is life-giving, but too much water will kill you, which is what it did here. And so it is true with the gospel. The gospel is life-giving. It is the means and agency by which the Lord quickens people, but it also brings with it judgment. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15 and 16, the Lord says, For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ, in them that are saved and in them that perish. To the one... We are the savor of death unto death because when you preach the gospel to somebody and they reject it, they are rejecting the fact that they are sinners, they are rejecting the fact that they are in need of salvation, and they are rejecting Christ, the Savior. To the other, he says, we are the savor of life unto life. So, preaching the gospel, but to those that love the gospel, it brings life to them. Romans 1.16, the Lord says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God, unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So if you believe, the gospel brings life to you. However, in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 and 19, it says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish. It is foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. So the gospel, typified by water, can bring either life or it can bring death. Too much water is death. Reject the gospel is to sign your own death warrant. 
Proverbs 8.36 says, All that hate me love death. All that hate me love death. Reject the gospel, reject Christ, and you love death because that is what is in store for you. So we see here that God said that he was going to destroy all air-breathing fresh as he said he was. Now I want you to contrast Genesis chapter 8, verse 13 with Genesis chapter 8, verse 14. The Lord uses two different um, Hebrew words in there for the word dry. In verse 13, it says that he behold the face of the ground and it was dry. That's Hebrew word, as you can see, it's 2717. That's a different number. And the one in verse 14 is 301, dried. So as I had mentioned earlier, superficially the ground was too wet to walk upon, and the animals would have been trapped in the mud. It's surely not safe for them to go. But 57 days later, uh, he was able to send the animals forth to overspread uh, the earth. So the word that is in uh, verse 13 is translated in other places, and it means, if you look at the deeper meaning of it, it means to lay waste. The earth was laid waste. So when Noah looks out upon the earth on that time, he sees utter destruction uh, that the earth was laid waste to. So we should appreciate that God's judgment was, in fact, accomplished, that God is very serious about sin and serious in terms of the judgment that it brings upon man. The wages of sin is death. Not only death for man, but death for the whole planet, because in Genesis chapter 3, God cursed the earth. So the animals and the plants and everything on this earth has suffered and will continue to suffer because of man's sin until such time as the Lord brings in a new heaven and a new earth. So the righteousness of God was revealed from heaven at this time as he poured out his wrath upon the earth. The ark being a type of Christ bore that wrath of God and yet was carried through it by the waters. 1 Peter 3.21, as we've talked about in the past, tells us that the ark is a type of Christ. So this judgment that we see there um, is pointing to, it's a prelude, if you will, to the judgment that was poured out on Christ in real time um, in, uh, in the Gospels that we see when Christ was nailed to the cross. So the Lord had said in Genesis 3 that cursed is the ground for thy sake. Because of what Adam has done, the ground itself was cursed. And so because of that, um, the Lord uses kind of anthropological terms in Romans chapter 8, verse 18 through 22, where he talks about the whole creation groans and travaileth uh, together until such time as the um, creature, the um, Christians, will manifest themselves. Um, Verse 22 of Romans 8. We know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth together in pain until now. So the earth is travailing, waiting for the redemption of the saints. The animals are, the plants are, if, if these, that is possible. So he's using terms to, um, as though the um, inanimate objects are crying out for salvation uh, like an animate object might do. And so it shall be until such time as the Lord comes and regenerates his people. So that was the first part where we would appreciate that God's judgment was total and complete in everything that he said it would be, and that he destroyed all air-breathing life on the planet. And so when I think of that, it's easy to compartmentalize it. Um, if you look out in the world today and see all the children running around and think of the grammar schools, and I think of young children uh, in particular as being um, something that really captures my heart, Imagine the earth being broken up between, um, 
in these schools, in these cities, and water coming up and killing everybody, drowning everybody where they are. Um, it's not some cartoonish thing that took place. I told you uh, a couple of weeks ago about a mathematical study done where the uh, author postulated that there could have been a very large number of people living on the planet. Certainly the fossil records show that there were a great deal number of animals that were fossilized by mud flows. So again, there's a great deal of evidence indicating that um, the flood uh, was quite catastrophic. So it's very egregious judgment, but the Lord is going to do it again when he pours out fire and burns up the earth the next time. So it's very real, and he's given us proof of his veracity, of the veracity of his word, that he's going to do what he said he is going to do, and he's given us lots of proof of it. There's lots of geographical and geological evidence of the flood. He specifically says in, uh, I think it's in Second Peter, about Sodom and Gomorrah, he left them as an example. You can see the ash heap uh, on the western edge of the Dead Sea. You can look at the sulfur balls. They're still there. They've been chemically tested. They are the purest sulfur found anywhere on the earth is in those sulfur balls in Sodom, in the city that was once Sodom. He's, he has left us examples that uh, we can appreciate that he, in fact, will do what he says he's going to do. Now, if we look at Genesis chapter 7 and chapter 8 and just take a few steps back, Obviously, um, Noah represents regeneration in terms of he was an individual who went from the old world to the new world. So we might think that we look at it uh, in a big picture sense. We ought to see regeneration, the steps of regeneration in what um, the Christian has experienced in their life as well. So I just kind of want to walk through and, and pull out some scriptures here when you look at them in the order that things took place to help us appreciate that. Well, in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, it talks about every imagination of the thoughts of the heart was only evil continuously. That should have been where you were when God first started opening up your heart to how you thought about things. As Christians, um, we have had God reveal our hearts to us in terms of the fact that we were sinners. And I find that as I get older, I struggle more with these issues about where my thoughts go. And the Lord um, shows me more frequently, I think, now that I'm struggling with my thoughts, that they are not um, uh, where they should be. The Lord, in the broadest sense, tells us that whatsoever is not of faith is sin, and all unrighteousness is sin. So while you might want to go through the, the law and categorize a few things, it's really much broader than that. Whatever is um, not righteous is sin, and all th whatever is not of faith is sin. So if you're, whatever thoughts you're thinking, unless they're about Christ or unless those thoughts are directed by Christ, it is really sin. So God has opened up to us the nature of our sin. And you'll recall that that's where all of the Gospels begin, with uh, John the Baptist coming forth and preaching, repent. Why would you repent? Because you're a sinner. Even Jesus starts that. He says, repent and believe the gospel. So a revelation of sin comes first, and that's where this section in Genesis opens up. In verse 8 of Genesis chapter 6, we find that Noah has found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And so it is true with every Christian, everybody who's regenerated, they are regenerated because they have found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and the Lord imputes to us his righteousness. In Romans chapter 2, verse 4, it says, The goodness of God leads you to repentance. And so God would lead us by grace 
to repentance, uh, having revealed to us the nature of our sin, because why would you repent if you did not understand that you were a sinner? I mean, John the Baptist asked that when the scribes and the Pharisees come to him. He says, what are you doing here, you generation of vipers? <laughs> Who hath warned thee about the wrath to come? And like, you're all a bunch of hypocrites. You do not believe that you are sinners. You believe that you are self-righteous. So you're not going to repent. So, and then in verse uh, 20... We see in the context of the animals that they are drawn to Christ, just as we are drawn to Christ. We are given to the Son by the Father. In John 6, 37, the Lord says that. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and he that cometh to me will I in no wise cast out. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. So all those animals didn't just pair up as a matter of co- didn't pair up and appear at the ark. By coincidence, they were drawn by God. God brought them to the ark of Christ, just like he drew every one of us to Christ his son. We were given to the son by the father. So once they come to the ark, what do they do? Why they go into the ark. They entered into the ark, which the Lord tells us is a type of Christ in 2 Peter chapter 3, 21. They entered into Christ through the door, which is Christ. And Jesus says unto them that he is the door of the sheep. So that should help us draw the dots from here where animals are entering into the ark through the door to us whom the Lord identifies as sheep. All we like sheep have gone astray. So we enter into the Christ through the door of Christ. In John 10, 9, he says that I am the door. If by me any man enter in, he shall be saved. Not might be saved, but will be saved. And so in verse 16 of Genesis 7, we see that the door is shut by God. God shuts them in. Nobody's going to get out. None of those passengers, none of those animals will be lost. The ark of Christ will carry them through the wrath of God until they land in the new um, world. In our case, the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus says, all that the Father hath given me, I should lose nothing. If you're shut up into Christ, um, you are secure eternally. Now, we know that when the ark was made in verse 14 of Genesis chapter 6, that he pitched it within and without with pitch. In other words, atone it uh, within and ransom it without. It's covered by the blood, what would represent the blood of Christ. And so we are covered by the blood of Christ. We go into Christ. We are covered with the blood of Christ. And then we see that once they're in there in verse 11, that the fountains of the earth are opened up and the floodgates of heaven uh, dump upon them. And so we see that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. The wrath of God is being poured out upon the earth. However, those that are covered by the blood of Christ, those that are in the ark, are safe. They are separated from the world because they are in Christ. And God uses that language in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. He says, But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wouldn't anybody swimming outside the ark? And if you survived, it's because you were in the ark. You gloried by virtue of the fact you gloried in the ark. <laughs> um, so God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. So the cross separates us from the world, just as these people in the ark were separated from that which was without the ark. That which was out the out with that which was without the ark was being destroyed by God, him pouring out his righteous indignation upon the sin of men. In Galatians two twenty it says, I am crucified with 
Christ. And this, of course, is language similar to Romans chapter 6 about being baptized unto the death of Christ. So he says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So we live, just like the occupants of the ark, they live in Christ. They are safe because they're in Christ, the world being crucified unto them. Now in Genesis chapter 8, verse 1, we see that a wind passed over the earth and the waters assuaged. And so we should appreciate that um, in our Christian walk that we receive the Holy Ghost, which the Lord says is a comforter. And so having received this wind uh, typified by the, typifying the Holy Ghost, that um, no doubt they received comfort. <clears throat> they were assured of their safety because in a few verses after that, it talks about the ark coming to rest coming to rest. That's verse 4. And so we rest in Christ. The Lord tells us that we would rest in him, that we should cast our burdens upon him. He says in Matthew 11, 28, 29, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Whatever striving about this world you are engaged in, the Lord tells you not to do that. You should be resting in Him. He will carry you safely um, to eternal glory. He will carry you safely uh, to His heavenly Father. Our souls should be at rest, and we should not be concerned about the things of this world, but rather just resting in Him. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. We are going to get to glory no matter what happens on this world. Um, in verse 5, of Genesis chapter 8, we see that the tops of the mountains are seen. And as I mentioned before, that's a bit of a glimpse of the new heaven and the new earth. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 9 and 10 says, But as it is written, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the hearts of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God has revealed them unto us by his Spirit, for the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. So we should appreciate what things the Lord has placed in Scripture. He has told us what's, uh, what uh, we can expect, the wonderful things that God has prepared for us. But again, according to the measure of the Holy Ghost that we have received would be the degree to which we can understand and appreciate those things and cling to those promises. Um, whatever you know about the new heaven and the new, new earth, I am quite certain it falls, it falls uh, way short of the actual glory that we shall appreciate when we're there. And so in kind of a metaphorical sense, we can see but the tops of the mountains, but not all of the wonderful and beautiful things that would be beneath that. In verse 11, we see that an olive leaf is received from the dove um, into the ark, and we should appreciate that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Satisfaction has been um, revealed to them that God was satisfied with what he has done, and we see that in Isaiah 53, 11, where the Lord says, He, God, shall see the travail of his soul, see the travail of Christ's soul, and shall be satisfied by his knowledge. In other words, by the things that he has suffered, shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. And indeed, the Lord has done that very thing. His sins, our sins, excuse me, were imputed to him, and his righteousness of was imputed to us, and God the Father was satisfied with what things the Lord had suffered on our behalf. So the olive leaf is received, indicating that God is satisfied. The waters are calm, 
they've come down and uh, the earth is now beginning to dry out. Um, now, with respect to regeneration set before us here, if you look at verse 19, the Lord uses an interesting word there, Genesis chapter 8. It says, Every beast, every creeping thing, and every fowl, and whatsoever creepeth upon the earth after their kinds went forth out of the ark. Interestingly enough there, the Hebrew word that is translated as kinds there is a different Hebrew word. As a matter of fact, this is the first time it appears in scriptures. Um, it is not the same Hebrew word that was translated in, um, in uh, chapter 6, verse 20, where the word kinds is used three different places in that verse. In Genesis 7:14, it's used four different times, uh, meaning kinds, which is the kinds you see in Genesis chapter 1. So what I'm sharing with you is that which went into the ark was different than that which came out of the ark. The Lord uses two different words so that we would appreciate that we are new creatures. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. That word kinds in, uh, in verse 19 is the same word that is used in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, where the Lord tells Abraham that in him shall all families of the earth be blessed. It's also the same word that's used in Genesis chapter 4, where Abraham sends out his chief servant to go find a um, wife for his son Isaac, and he cautions him. He says, only take a bride from my family, from my, of our kinds. And so we should appreciate that what is in view here is a uh, Christian uh, individual who has been regenerated. So that which goes into the ark is different than that which comes out of the ark. Now that they are in the new heaven, the new earth, um, previous one having been destroyed, um, they are new creatures. <clears throat> and so again, Romans chapter four, verse six, it says, "Therefore we are buried with him by baptism unto death, and that as like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so also should walk in newness of life. So having been regenerated, of course, now we should be walking as Christ walked. Also helping us with this parallel is Colossians chapter 1, verse 21 and 22. And he says, And you, that would be you and me, that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death in the body of his flesh through death. It's like going into the ark to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. So through this process of regeneration, through this process of uh, being crucified with Christ, the Lord has regenerated us and he has made us unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. And so how does this chapter end up? It ends up with the Lord smelling a sweet savor. He's pleased. And it ends up with him beginning now to reveal to Noah Noah, who's at the altar of God, beginning to reveal to Noah his will. And so it is with all Christians. When you're outside of Christ before you're regenerated, you don't have any idea of who Christ is and the glory that resides in him. You don't know what God's will is uh, for the world. You don't know what God's will is for your life, assuming you're going to be regenerated. But once you have been regenerated, God starts to reveal himself to you in a way that uh, you would appreciate your relationship with him what he's going to do with the world, and where you will spend eternal glory. So I know I covered a lot of things this morning, but again, I want us to appreciate uh, God's judgment. Right now the world is reserved for judgment. He did destroy it once, and he will do it again, just as he said he will. 
Scripture tells us that men are willfully ignorant of what he has done and also want us to appreciate that. There we have the gospel, the picture of regeneration as you walk through uh, Genesis chapter 7 and Genesis chapter 8. So uh, with that, we'll say amen.